about three days into the job, I thought, what am I doing here? You know, I, I was used to working in an office full of MBAs in a 10 story building. And now I'm working in a freight terminal in South central LA. And I, I called my old boss, who was the president of the big company. And I said, I think I made a mistake. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Welcome back to the podcast, folks. It's Wrestling Changed My Life, presented by Spartan Combat. I'm your host, Ryan Warner. It's Thursday morning here in Chicago, IL, and our guest today is a Chicago native himself. He's the CEO of Echo Global Logistics, a Fortune 1000 company. His name's Doug Wagner. And in this episode, we go a little bit business on you, dropping some sales and career advice, if you will. Doug also invented an app called Quant Wrestling. They just went live with it in the past year or so. They're combining statistics with wrestling stats to get super accurate in terms of predicting results. It's pretty cool. Check it out at quantwrestling.com. Fan of the week goes to Leslie Tamio. That's Leslie Lynn underscore on the gram. Thank you for the support. We appreciate it. And if you want to nominate someone for fan of the week, just text FOW to 22454. That's FOW to 22454. And that's it, folks. Let's get to the episode with Doug Wagner. Doug Wagner, welcome to the podcast, sir. How are you? Great, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we get into your wrestling background, I'm probably most interested in your business acumen. Uh, You're the CEO of Echo Global Logistics. You've had a long career in sales, which is one of my passions. So maybe we'll just start with the uh, the 30-foot overview on, on your background and where you're at today. Sure. Um, I got out of college and went into a management training program in a trucking company and uh, worked in several trucking companies, kind of climbed up the ladder and various times spent uh, time in sales, operations, engineering, IT, marketing, customer service. So I I really kind of learned all the various disciplines of a business and uh, was CEO of several trucking companies. And then I started a transportation management software company. Uh, called Select Trans back in about 2005. And then uh, in 2006, I sold that to the founders of Echo when Echo was about one year old and, and joined as the CEO. And at the time we had about 35 employees 
and uh, six million in revenue. And today we have about 2,700 employees and almost three billion of revenue. Wow! So you've had a very successful career. Let's start with the uh, and, and you, you wrestled in high school and you're doing some really cool things with with another uh, passion project of yours, Quant Wrestling. We're going to talk about that, but um, I got to know. I mean. How did you take the leap of faith to leave whatever job you were at and start Select Trans? Walk us through that process. <laughs> well, it was simple. I was working for a company that got purchased. Uh, and at the time, I was commuting to Scottsdale, uh, Arizona from Chicago. And I'd been doing it for two years. I, I worked in a company and we, we owned six different transportation companies. And I was uh, asked if on a temporary basis, I would go run one of the companies for six months. That stretched into two years. My, my kids were one and three years old at the time, and uh, I was tired of commuting and uh, didn't really want to relocate to Phoenix. And so when the new company bought us, I stayed on for another year. And then finally, I had a change of control agreement. So I, I took my change of control. They, they paid me a nice uh, lump sum, and that gave me a little breathing room to go start something new. So you were going like Monday through Friday type deal or months at a time to Arizona? No, I would, I would basically get on an airplane Sunday night or Monday morning and, and work all day or all week in Phoenix and then uh, come back on, on Friday night. But, uh, you know, I had about 30 locations in a five-state area. So I was also, once I got to, to Phoenix, I was traveling, you know, around the Western United States quite a bit. So it was, it was airplanes all the time. Man. And so you, that kind of worked in your favor. You started the Select Trans. Talk us through some of the, some of the early growing pains that go into starting a business. Well, I have always been fascinated with technology. I got a minor in computer science in college, and, and so you know when the first PCs came back or came out in back in 1980, 81, you know I had one, and I was writing code, and you know more as a hobby than anything. So when I was uh, when I left the big company and started Selectrans, I, I got a buddy that had worked for me in, in IT, and, and the two of us started coding a, a transportation management system, also known as a TMS. And so we, we literally, you know, the two of us wrote the code and, uh, in about a nine-month period and, and started selling it. And we, we came up with about six customers uh, about the time that I got approached by the founders of Echo to join them. And uh, I told them, I said, look, you know, I... I like what you're doing, but I started a company and I have customers. And they said, that's fine. We'll buy your company. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, that makes it hard to say no. <laughs> and, you know, from a sales perspective, I'm sure a lot of, a lot of your customers were folks you had done business with before, um, just given your prowess in the industry over 20 plus years. But, you know, we were talking offline beforehand, you know, when, when you're a salesperson at a startup, it's quite different than uh, being a salesperson at a Cisco or an IBM where anyone will take your meeting because it's, it's a pretty safe bet. You know, you know, you've always heard the saying, no one gets fired for buying IBM. So big difference in selling on your own. Um, talk us through some of the, uh, I mean, just in general for a salesperson, what are some of the key things you've realized that enabled you to have success, whether it's selling externally or selling internally to your employees? What are some, some lessons? Sure. There? Well, I actually, we hire about 50 people every month and I meet with every incoming class and I, I give a speech about the importance of sales. And, and really, you know, what I tell them, you know, everybody's a salesman in business. And, and in my job as a CEO of a public company, 
you know, I'm selling all the time. I'm selling to my employees, you know, how I want them to perform and the culture that we need to have. I'm, I'm selling to my customers because I want them to use our company. I'm selling to investors because I want them to buy my, my stock. And when I go home, I'm selling to my wife about where I want to go on vacation. So, <laughs> so I, I encourage people that are coming into their very first job out of college uh, to embrace sales, even if they find it uncomfortable, because everything in life is about sales and, and especially in business. So I think it's important to develop those skills. You know, you, you were talking about my startup. Um, funny, funny story. Um, our first large potential customer was very interested. We'd done the software demo. They liked it, but they were part of an even bigger, they were owned by DHL in fact at the time. And uh, they said, well, before we can sign a contract, we have to come visit your operations. <laughs> it's just me and one other guy. And he lived in Pasadena, California, and I was in, in the suburbs of Chicago. So I said, okay, um, that sounds good. So I, I went over to my friend's office because I was working out of the home and we commandeered several offices in the front desk in the conference room and put up some signs and made it look like it was select trans. And so when they came to town, you know, we brought them into our offices and uh, you know, I, I don't know if they ever figured it out or not, but they eventually ended up buying from us. So that was a good thing. That's awesome. It's a, uh, you know, when you look at your career, it looks like it's been really just up and to the right the whole time. Um, I know just from, personal experience and from learning, it's never that way with the business. And, and when you're a public company, uh, every quarter, it's a, it's a, it's a rush to the finish. Um, but I was watching one of the promotional videos you guys have on, on Echo's website. And I think it was your COO said every day fires come up and every day problems come up. And, you know, if you let those things fester on your mind, you know, after the job and as you're driving home and, you know, if you starts to build day after day, it can, you know, it can cause some real stress and that's obviously detrimental to performance. So one of the things I was most excited to ask you about is what's your process for like stress management or how do you handle, like, how do you, how do you conceptualize when, when something bad comes up, how do you turn it into to something good, so to speak? Do you have any routines or, or tactics there? Yeah. Well, two things on that one in our business, things happen all the time that are bad. You know, we move about 18,000 shipments a day and we don't own a single truck. So we've got a database of 50,000 trucking companies. We have about 30,000 shippers and we essentially make a, a transportation marketplace and things happen, you know, um, shipments get lost. They don't get picked up on time. And so we constantly deal with problems and it can be a very high stress environment. And, and uh, so that's a given and you have to get over it because if, if you solve a problem for a customer, you breed more loyalty and they come back. And uh, I get more letters from customers that want to congratulate one of our employees on fixing a problem uh, than, than I do on negatives. So uh, every problem is an opportunity to prove yourself and, and create loyalty. Personally, how I deal with it is I've been meditating for, uh, well, since I was a junior in high school. And, and uh, I took a transcendental meditation class way back in 1975. Um, I've practiced a lot of other forms of, of meditation since that time. And, and uh, I find that a way to relieve stress and, and uh, get in the right place. That's exciting because I'm, I'm a daily meditator myself. I did not know that. When do you do it? In the morning or at night? I do it twice a day, once in the morning and once at night. 20 minutes each. You and Ray Dalio, that's his routine. That's crazy. Um, almost to a T. So when, so when you're doing it, are you trying to 
actively not think of anything or do you just let thoughts kind of come and go as they do? There's a lot of different techniques that you can use. You know, if you, if you practice TM, you, you say a mantra, which is a word that has no meaning. It's just a sound. And focusing on that sound uh, allows you to be focused. And then when, when thoughts come out of your subconscious, you can recognize that and, and let go of them. Uh, another, another technique is to count, uh, count breaths. Um, you know, when you've been doing it for a long time, you really don't have to do anything. You just sit there and quiet your mind. And as the thoughts bubble up out of your subconsciousness, you just acknowledge them and let them go. And, and for the non-meditator, it's hard to understand how powerful that is. And my challenge to people uh, who want to meditate is to try it for 30 days, you know, and, and you'll see the difference. You know, it's, it's very nuanced, but once you've done it, um, it just feels like it clears out your head. And I actually have a website for people who want to learn how to meditate. Uh, I just did it for the fun of it. It's called 100breaths.com. Little plug. I don't make any money on it. It's a, it's a public service. Excellent, man. You are, uh, you are into to coding and tech and, and building little passion projects. Yeah. I just like to geek out now and then. And, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of the things. So you do that in the, that's one of your daily practices. That's, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you, there, and, there's a, there's another technique that I learned once that's very powerful. Um, and it's, it's, if, if you, don't mind getting a little too metaphysical here. Um, Let's get into it. You know, there's um, the idea that we believe what we believe because of what we've experienced. But in reality, it's the other way around. What we experience is based on our beliefs. So if I believe you're a bad guy, I'm going to experience you to be a bad guy, right? So there's a meditation technique that you can use to discreate your beliefs. So you find the beliefs that are limiting you and then you run this meditation process to discreate those beliefs and uh, they go away, you know? And when I learned, well, I took a one week class in this and it was fascinating because at the time I was, you know, lifting a lot of weights and, and I, I had never been able to bench press 325 pounds. And, um, so in my class, I said, well, the reason you can't bench 325 pounds is because you don't believe you can. So discreate that belief. So I went to the gym and I laid on the bench press and uh, on the bench and I closed my eyes. I had a spotter and I said, okay, give me a few minutes. And I, I did my little discreation meditation and I promptly uh, lifted 325 pounds. <laughs> It's, it's amazing the impact of limiting beliefs. And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's, um, it's something as widely discussed as possible as it should be, but you know, that a limiting belief can be anything that you believe that obviously isn't true or, or it could be true, but really it's only true if you believe it. I mean, when did you start to notice, um, that a lot of the beliefs we hold are actually false? Well, everything that you experience is based on a belief, good or bad, right? And, and I think it was when I took this class back in my 30s that that was kind of drilled into my head. And when you start to look around and observe, you know, just your reaction to something, you know, the driver pulls out in front of you and, and you, you know, you believe that he's an idiot, you know, and you honk your horn and, and uh, give him an obscene gesture. 
And then, you know, maybe an hour later, you do the same thing, right? And you, you kind of laugh at yourself and say, look, I had this big emotional reaction to something because, you know, I believe that that was a bad guy and he just made a mistake like I just did. Mm-hmm. Man, that is, I'm sure you use that day in and day out in, in your world. I mean, perceiving events as good and bad. I mean, was there any one particular, you know, limiting belief that, that was kind of holding you back or that you had to get through in business or were there any big turning points that you can think of? Yeah, you know, when I uh, was, you know, a young guy kind of climbing the corporate ladder uh, in a big company, I I never believed that I could run a company one day. And um, somewhere along the line, because I didn't have the MBA and I didn't have, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I I went to San Diego State, which at the time was the number one party school in the country. Um, And it just never conceived, you know, I, I never conceived of the idea that I could be a CEO of a company and, and somewhere along the line, I can't tell you exactly what it was, but I, I kind of woke up one day and said, well, if I believe I can, I probably can't, you know, and I just have to take some risks. And it was, it was actually the belief that I could that encouraged me to take some risk and to leave a very comfortable job, you know, in a, in a three, $3 billion company, you know, as a vice president to take a flyer, to go to a small company and get an opportunity to run it. And what, which company was that? Well, I was, I was working for a company called YRC, which is a LTL trucking company out of Overland Park, Kansas. And uh, I had got recruited by Daylight Transport, which at the time was a very small $82 million company in Los Angeles. And uh, the owner was, uh, you know, an entrepreneur, he had started the company from scratch. And he said, look, I'd like you to come be my president, but I've got two other guys working for me that think they ought to be the president. So I can't just give it to you. You have to earn it. And, and uh, he said, so I want you to come on as a CIO. And by the way, we need a new computer system. So I, I need you to build a whole new computer system for us. And, and if you do a good job, you know, I'll make you president. And I thought about it for a second. He says, I'm an entrepreneur and I take risk. He says, I want to see if you'll take a risk. So here I was working in a company that I'd been at for 13 years. I was very comfortable. I knew where all the knobs and levers were. I knew how to get things done. I was well thought of. I got promoted every two years. And I had to make the decision to quit my job and move to Los Angeles. Um, with the hopes of being the president of this little dinky $82 million company. And uh, I remember I, I got there and the, the offices were in South Central Los Angeles. And if you're not familiar with that is, that's where the riots were. Um, I later moved the office to Long Beach, but I, I got there, I was the chief information officer and, and uh, about three days into the job, I, thought, what am I doing here? You know, I, I was used to working in an office full of MBAs in a 10 story building. And now I'm working in a freight terminal in South Central LA. And I, I called my old boss, who was the president of the big company. And I said, I think I made a mistake. And he said, well, he said, uh, the, the toothpaste is kind of out of the tube. So the, the owner of the new company that I went to work for, um, he was, noticing that I was struggling. And so he, he pulled me aside one day and said, uh, how are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm okay. And he says, you're struggling, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I'm just not used to being in a company this small with so little resources. And he said, well, he said, um, 
I'm going to teach you a, a, an important lesson here. He said, you know, the big company that you work for. And I said, yeah, I said, you know, the CEO of that company. And I said, yeah. And he says, I make more money than he does. And he said, uh, I've never been in a corporate boardroom, but he says, you know, this business is just as legitimate as, as a big company. And he says, big is not better. It's just different. And small is not better. It's just different. And you can be happy wherever you are. And it was kind of fatherly advice he gave me at the time. I was probably about 35 years old. And um, he was right. You know, I, I found out that it was a great place to be. And, and I enjoyed being in a smaller company and, and being more entrepreneurial. And he taught me how to be an entrepreneur. So it was a good experience. But, you know, I thought I'd made a mistake. I, I took the big risk and then I second guessed myself, but it worked out fine. Man, when you're having those moments of self-doubt and those conversations with yourself, like let's say on day three, you're driving home and you're probably just in one of the lowest spots you could be in. It's like those moments where it's either going to make or break and it's, it's obviously you, you stuck it out. But, um, you know, when you say it was the smaller company with no resources, was it just that you weren't feeling as proud to work there or, or what was it about the uh, smaller company? Well, it was just, you know, I, I worked in a Fortune 500 company that had, you know, 40,000 employees and we had MBAs everywhere. We had PhDs. We, you know, we had uh, consultants. We had, we had all these resources everywhere you looked. I, I used to work with all the big consulting firms on, on projects. And when I got to this small little company, there wasn't a single person that had a college degree other than, you know, four VPs and a few salesmen. And I just felt like intellectually, I wasn't in the same environment, but uh, you know, that was just ego. Right. And once I got past that, uh, I learned that it was a lot of fun. In fact, the biggest, my biggest awakening is I went to the head of HR and I said, I'd like to give my assistant a, a raise. And she said, okay. I said, what do I have to do? And she said, just tell me. I said, you mean I don't have to do any paperwork and I don't have to wait until the annual increase cycle? And she said, no, just tell me. And I go, that's kind of nice. You know, there's no <laughs> bureaucracy here. You said something though that was like the, the key trigger point there is you let the ego get out of the way. And that's, you know, I feel like one of the biggest things holding people back from doing what they actually love to do is either ego or fear. And, and, and honestly, there's some really, very real circumstances for people who have maybe overextended themselves and they're in their in debt and they can't do that, which that's a whole nother can of worms. But um, you know, the ego part and letting it get out of the way is a big piece of it. I wanted to ask you though about, you know, this rise of your career, you wrestled in high school. How much of it do you think is attributed to some of the lessons you learned in wrestling and just kind of that grit and grind, so to speak? Yeah, I was a three sport athlete in high school and, and I loved wrestling. Um, I actually played some football in college, but I, I wanted to wrestle. It's just at the time that I wrestled, I graduated, there weren't many West Coast wrestling programs because Title IX had kicked in. And, but, you know, I, I remember going from the football season into the wrestling season two weeks after it started because of the overlap, thinking, mm -hmm. okay, well, this is going to be pretty good because I'm in shape from football. And then I would show up in the wrestling room and realize I'm not even close to in, being in wrestling shape. So, uh, that, that was kind of my first awakening about wrestling. But uh, I just loved the one-on-one, -on -one, the grit and determination. You know, I, I had, I was pretty good at that time. You know, uh, the wrestling at, at that time doesn't compare to the wrestling today. So I'm sure I would be average today. Um, 
But just just the, the mano a mano, I'm not going to let you beat me. I'm on my back. I'm not going to let you pin me. And, and fighting through those situations, I think, has a lot of parallels with business, you know, because we run up against obstacles all the time. And, and you have to figure out how to get through that obstacle. And it's, it's the same as being on a wrestling mat. It really is. And it's April now, so there's a lot of people listening to the show who are wrestlers who are in college and they're getting ready for that first job, which to me is the most terrifying moment of your life, that first job out of college. Um, but by the way, they should contact us because we, we hire a lot of kids out of college every month and I love wrestlers. That's what I, well, I was going to go there. I was going to say, what advice do you have? But you're doing me one better. You're, you're giving a, an open opportunity to come and work. And um, I don't know if those are those sales positions working for you. Or? We hire a lot of salespeople, a lot of 2,700 employees, probably 1,600 of them are sales jobs. Yeah. I, and that's, you know, when I was growing up, I thought you had to be a doctor or a lawyer, an accountant or an engineer to get a good job. You know, no one had ever told me about sales and I was you know, I took the LSAT twice. I almost went to law school and a mentor of mine said, Hey, you should go into technology sales. And I thought he meant use car sales. And when I told my mom, I wasn't going to law school and that I was moving to San Francisco to work in tech, she thought I was crazy. And you know, she was a little mystified by it, but you know, the freedom, the, uh, just the competitiveness that sales allows. It's like, I always say you're like the athlete of the business world, you know, like marketing's there to help you. Um, the engineers are there to help you on demos. You know, you're really the one driving it and quarterbacking the whole thing. So there's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from being a salesperson. I think wrestlers, especially, you know, if you, if you have some of the soft skills, the sales skills can be learned. Like, I think it's ridiculous that there's a natural born salesperson. I don't think that's the case at all. I've worked with a lot of really smart people who were like chemical engineers who just got bored doing that and they wanted to be in front of customers. And so they were great salespeople, but it can be learned. Um, but the one thing that can't be learned is the, is the persistence that wrestling teaches you. And, you know, wrestlers going into sales to me is a no brainer. Everybody I talk to, I try to convince them just to try it for two years, because if you sold for two years, you can pretty much do anything you want in a company because you've been customer facing, you know? Absolutely. And I go back to my previous comment, which is, you know, everything in life and particularly in business has sales in it. And, and so it's a skill that you need to perfect when you're young and an entry level job is a great way to do it. You know, our, our people that join us, you know, we, we pay a low entry rate, but it goes to commission at some point and the earnings are unlimited there. You know, I have people who make a million dollars a year. Sure. Yep. And so that's the thing about sales is, it may not be a management role and some people want a management role, but if you're happy being an individual contributor, uh, you get a lot of freedom in that job and you can make a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of cash. And you know, the management part, it's like, once you start to become a sales rep, I couldn't, I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to manage 10 other people's quotas. You know, as long as I get my stuff done, I'm good with that. And you know, the boss is cool with it. While we're on the topic of sales, before we switch to quant, I got to ask you, your LinkedIn says that you are a sales manager in Alaska in 1986. How did a San Diegoan or Californian get up to Alaska and what is it like to sell in Alaska? Well, I actually was living in Seattle at the time and uh, we had a division that was in Alaska. So I would go up there twice a month. And most of my time was spent in Anchorage and Fairbanks. And I, I got to be 
in both locations, both, both on June 21st, which is the longest day of the year and the sun never sets in Fairbanks, as well as December 21st, where the sun never comes up. And uh, I, I went to Prudhoe Bay once, which is the oil fields up on the, the North Slope. And uh, the temperature, not, not the wind chill factor, but the temperature was minus 75. So, uh, but it's, I love it. You know, it's a beautiful place. Um, if you like the outdoors, you know, there's, there's lots to do there. It's, it's a gorgeous country. So that's the story there. I wasn't sure if you were like living up there or what, but I was just such a. Uh, couldn't get me to live there, but I, I don't mind flying up there uh, once or twice a month. I don't blame you. Now, so you've had this, and, and from a business perspective, I used to host a business podcast. We could go on and on about deal strategy and all these things, but there's some wrestling fans on here. And I want to talk. Yeah, they're probably them. bored up until now. I hope I hope not. And I'm going to put in the title job uh, job searchers beware because this is their kind of <laughs> podcast. Um, but so you've had uh, your kids um, wrestle at University of Illinois now. Is that right? And as your kids have got back into it, you've gotten really back into the sport. Is that fair yes. to say? Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I took a, a number of years where I didn't pay much attention to wrestling, but I always loved it. I just mm-hmm. was busy building my career. And when my son uh, was in the, I guess it was seventh grade, you know, he decided he was going to try wrestling. And of course, that made dad really happy and uh, gave me a vehicle to get back involved and learn about how the sport had changed and all all the tools that are out there now and and the podcasts. And and so uh, it's been a blast for me. And he's he's a freshman at University of Illinois now. Go fighting Illini, you know. We're big fans of uh, Coach Heffernan, and Coach Poeta, Coach Medlin uh, here at this podcast. And, you know, you were at your building. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was where you, you own that building, right? Where we had the rooftop rumble this summer. Is that your well, office no, building? I, we don't we don't own the building, but we're a tenant and okay. we're the largest tenant in the building. So we, we had a little bit of clout. They were actually pretty flexible in letting us have the rooftop. Got it. So for folks who can remember last June when we were in the early days of COVID and there was no wrestling, the uh, rumble on the rooftop was the first wrestling event post big tens. And uh, I, I always thought that was your building, but you, your office is in that building. So in my mind, yeah. it's the same. Um, yeah. But uh, so you've been back involved on in the scene and you've been going obviously to youth tournaments and to high school tournaments with your son. And I guess what led you to finding quant wrestling and what is that for folks who've never heard of it? So quant wrestling, uh, think about Moneyball. Um, most sports nowadays have incorporated statistics and analytics, you know, in, into the sport. Uh, if you think about uh, the, the movie Moneyball, the book, mm-hmm. um, that was probably the biggest eye opener for a lot of people, but, you know, football, I, I, I lived close to some coaches for the bears and, you know, had conversations with them about the, the amount of data and statistics and analytics that they look at, you know, in, in basketball now they're using artificial intelligence to evaluate video of how players move. And I just had the thought one day that, you know, wrestling is the one sport that doesn't have any statistics. You know, we, we basically track wins and losses and that's it. And so I was uh, kind of infatuated with the idea of how could we create more statistics in the sport of wrestling so that we can coach our athletes and scout the opponents. And, uh, you know, I do have a connection to the university of Illinois wrestling team. And I talked to Mike Poletta a little bit about it and, 
he, he fed me with some ideas and he was very encouraged. He was very interested in being a, a user of the data. And so uh, we, a couple of years ago, created a prototype to, to capture the data. And I can get more into that if you want, but we, we basically watched the, the wrestling matches on video and we have a app that essentially captures every everything that happens and timestamps it. And then from that, we calculate 555 different statistics. And what are examples of some of those statistics you're capturing? So we look at things like, um, you know, how many shots per minute do you take when you're in a neutral position? So if, if in a seven minute match, you know, you're on your feet for two of those minutes, you know, how many shots did you take um, divided by the two minutes? And, and so we, we can see how you compare to other, other wrestlers. If you think about, you know, you remember your statistics class, um, everything exists on a bell curve, right? You know, there's an average, but then there's people on both ends of that average. And the thickness of that curve is standard deviation. And so, you know, there's a lot to be learned about how your statistics compare to the average. And so we're really only scratching the surface on what we can do with the, the various data and statistics. Um, we, we track things like, uh, you know, time, time oriented things like what percentage of the match were you on your feet or on bottom or on top? Uh, we track the different kinds of shots that you take, you know, was it a, a left sweep single or a right high crotch or, a, you know, you know, a wrap or something like that. We, mm -hmm. we track how much time transpired from the time that you took the shot till you actually finished it or didn't finish it or it was defensively scored or it was stalemated. Uh, we track all the defensive statistics. So when somebody's shooting on you, you know, how, how well do you perform and are you able to defend it or, or do you get taken down? We track things like, you know, what percentage of the time do you line up on the, on the left versus the right from referee's position? Uh, we track turns, we track, you know, near falls, um, and everything has a time element. So we, we can see that when you shoot a left single uh, and get in on the leg, it takes you on average of 2.4 seconds to get the takedown. But when you shoot a right single, it ends up in a scramble and, and you never, you know, get the takedown. Right. And the application at first was to, was you were thinking the target audience was division one coaches, but now it's expanded to, I guess I'll call it the consumer audience, parents and coaches of, of middle school and high school wrestlers. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Last year we, we scored 7,000 NCAA matches and we, we have uh, college wrestlers actually that, that work for us. I don't want to tell their coaches, but they, they moonlight. We, we pay them on a per match basis. And we've got about 20 kids at a number of different schools. And, um, Every week when the matches occur, we give them seven, we, we assign them dual meets or we'll break up tournaments and we, uh, we give them 72 hours to score the match. And they basically use a mobile app that we created. It's like a video game. And, you know, when, when green, green shoots a right high crotch, they click the button and then it goes into green on top and gives them another set of menu items. And so they can very quickly score the match. Everything gets time stamped and stored in a database. And that's where we calculate the statistics from. And we, we capture about 50 different activities that can occur in a match. And so I think you, I, no, and, and, oh yeah, absolutely. And so as you expand the, the focus of it, would it be that 
you know, because I'm thinking of, we were talking about Kyle Dake ahead of time, right? Kyle Dake has such a wrestling mind and his coaches have such a wrestling mind that they see things when they watch film that we don't see, right? And, and we're just never going to be there. But for the folks who don't have that, I think this is, is you know, think about, you know, my mom knew nothing about wrestling and was taking us to all these tournaments. We were like, what did we do wrong? You know, how are we comparing? You know, we, we didn't know anything. And I just think that something like this would have been really cool to see because it gives you some, you statistical unbiased state on what's going on in the match and how it compares to other folks. So do you see an application in the future for parents of high school age wrestlers or is it, am I off base on who, who would be using this? Yeah. You asked me the question. I never really answered it, but the kind of the history of, of the app was that, you know, last year the intended audience was division one coaches and athletes thinking that, you know, they're going to use this to, coach their, their athletes and scout their opponents. And, mm -hmm. you know, to be honest with you, it really didn't take off. You know, we, we had a lot of conversations with D1 coaches. Um, some were interested, some didn't really get it. And I think a lot of them just felt like, Hey, you know, there's nothing better than me watching film uh, to figure out what's going on with a wrestler. So, you know, uh, a variety of responses. And um, so we didn't make the impact that we wanted to. And so this year we said, well, what the heck, let's just open it up to everybody. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a little bit dumbed down in, in the app. You know, if, if you get the free version, you, you get some ratings that we do. You can see schedules. You can see some historic results. If you want to drill down on a wrestler and see the re real detailed analysis, there's a $10 subscription. Um, but that's, it's all based on D1 wrestling. In the next uh, couple of months, we're going to be releasing a high school version. Now, we're obviously not going to score the matches for the high school wrestlers. That, that's impossible. But they'll have the capability to do it themselves. So if a high school wrestler wants to, you know, go back and watch his videos of his matches or have his parents in the stands do it while he's wrestling, they'll start to accumulate their own statistics on themselves and the people they've wrestled. And they can compare that to averages and, and start to see how they shape up. And then we're also looking at creating a freestyle version as well for, for free, uh, senior freestyle in which we would capture that data. I just love when folks are innovating in the sport. And this is something where, you know, you said some coaches weren't receptive to it. And I couldn't think of a, a group of people who have more, uh, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but um, a lot of people think that their experience, a lot of those college coaches, you know, are, are you know, they're just so focused on, on what they did in the sport and, and, you know, believing that their way is the best. And listen, that's how they got there. But you look at other sports, the amount of data being used is, you know, hundreds of times more than wrestling. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you some examples. I mean, I had a debate with several coaches last year about snap downs. And there's, there's a belief that, you know, if you good at snapping down your opponent, it leads to more takedowns. And we were able to prove statistically that that's not true. In fact, it was so not true that we, we stopped tracking it on our <laughs> version this year. Really? We, we just didn't see the value in it from a statistical standpoint. Um, there's other little golden rules in wrestling, things like uh, if you get the, the first takedown in a match, you're more likely to win. Well, you know, we actually found that that's true. You, you win 47% um, of the time. I'm sorry, 57% of the time if you get the first takedown. Um, you think it'd be more than that, like just based on what we've been told, you know, that's interesting though. Well, there's other stats like getting, getting a takedown in the last 20 seconds of a period, you know, that, that has a high correlation with winning as well. 
So, um, yeah, it's fun. You know, Those and, are... and, uh, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight, but I'm, I'm hoping in the next few years that uh, people will uh, look, I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it for the love of wrestling. So, you know, I, I'm uh, uh, spending a lot more to do this than, than I, that comes in the door. Uh, but it's a passion project, as you called it. And the reason I was focusing so heavily on your business career at the beginning is like, hey, people, this is someone who's built technology uh, that's used by Fortune 1000, Fortune 500 companies. I mean, you've had a long, long career of it. And so this isn't someone just coming in and, and creating an app that has never done it before. You've built numerous software systems, numerous applications, and it's a real blessing to wrestling to have you involved and have you putting this kind of time and focus into it because, you know, like you said, uh, you're not making any money off of it. Um, a lot of the projects in wrestling lose money, uh, including this podcast, but we love doing it. So it's it's a lot of fun to do. And I just think e the last thing I'll say about this is even object, you know, if, if it's just a middle schooler, and I'm thinking of a middle schooler up in Minnesota now whose parents have no experience with wrestling, they reach out all the time, they're trying to learn, how do we get them to this camp? You know, what do we do? Just being able to have some objective data on, hey, outside of the wins and losses, right? Because you may be practicing for a month and you wrestle someone who's really good and you might think that the last month of training was all for not. Or you might pin someone really easy and you think things are doing, you know, training's working as, as planned. But, you know, base, judging performance and judging progress off of wins and losses is probably one of the most problematic things you can do because the, uh, you know, the quality of competition can vary so greatly. But using data points within a match that aren't indicative, you know, that aren't just wins and losses to me is a pretty cool way to show progress for a young guy. Because if you're from like elementary to middle school, all everyone tells you is just keep going. Eventually it'll pay off. But being able to show some kind of concrete data on how things are progressing um, to me well, is really exciting. Well, yeah. I mean, just take, take a couple of examples. Um, which shots are you having the most success with? Which shots are you having the least success with? You know, that tells you something right there. You know, if I, I, I need to score, I better go to my go-to, right? And if I'm not scoring on this other shot, I better work on it in practice. Yeah. Conversely, defensively, how are people getting to you? You know, and, and you, you can start to pick apart your game just by looking at those statistics and seeing how they compare to other people. And it's even cool to see, you know, since they're going to be capturing the data points themselves, it's probably eye-opening for those folks to say, oh, these are important data points. Maybe I didn't think they had any correlation to anything. Yeah, in, in the version that we had last year for the D1 coaches, we went a lot deeper into the statistics. So we even had a predictive algorithms. So we had a match predictor that could you could pair up two wrestlers and we came up with a predictive model that would predict the winner of the match, get it right 86% of the time and have the point spread within one and a half points. Wow. And uh, that was more of a novelty. I mean, that really wasn't the purpose of it, uh, but it, it was kind of a little side project that we did. Uh, and, and it was fascinating. Uh, the NCAA tournament this year, we, we used a very simple Monte Carlo simulation to predict the winners on the championship side of the bracket. And we got 81% of, 640 matches correct wow i'm th in my head doug right now i'm thinking how do we invent a gambling app for wrestling and we can we can be the the, the sports book because that's pretty incredible odds right there well i'll tell you what i have a, my former cfo went to work for a uh, uh bet rivers which is a, or mm -hmm. a street interactive which is a online gambling company and they've got uh 
both casino gambling and they've got um, sports betting. And I hit him up the other day. I said, look, if I can give you the data, why don't we create a platform for betting on wrestling? And his response surprised me. He said, well, he said, you know, we take bets on pickleball. I don't know why we wouldn't take bets on wrestling. Seriously. It's the third most attended NCAA event. I mean, pickleball, I don't even know. I don't even know what it is to be honest with you. I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking cricket in my mind, which I know it's not that, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many people uh, who, who would want to see that shout out to my friend stalemates. Who's always pressing William Hill to make lines in the wrestling matches because there's, you know, Hey, I'm going to try to make it happen. Uh, I, I think with the um, right data, an odds maker could do it. And, you know, we could drum up the support in the wrestling community to make it happen. It'd be a lot of fun. It'd be a lot of fun. And it would help grow the sport. I mean, people watch sports they don't care about because they got cash on the line. And mm -hmm. so if we could eventually grow it to where people outside of just wrestling fans are betting on, are betting on the matches, that's going to draw more eyeballs. I mean, that is to me that the biggest no brainer on how to grow the sport, make people, give people the chance to bet on it and put some skin in the game. Well, and I got to tell you, if I have an algorithm that predicts the winner 85% of the time, that's the best use case for our system. Yes. That, that's a whole, whole new, <laughs> whole new audience. <laughs> yeah. Man, that is, that's so cool. And see, again, like just someone like you out there who doesn't need to do this, who's got a lot going on. Uh, you're, you're spending probably more time than your staff would, would like you uh, doing this kind of stuff. And I, I just love it. Yeah, don't tell them I'm on this podcast. <laughs> it's our secret. It's our secret. Well, I really appreciate your time. Um, and just wanted to close down with the last question we ask everyone. We've talked about your business career. We've talked about quant and some of the cool things you guys are doing there. Um, and just go, is it, is it quant wrestling? Quant wrestling. Yeah. Quant wrestling.com. The website's yeah. really clean. I like it. Uh, you have apps in both the uh, Apple and, and Google play store. So I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes, but last question for you, Doug, how did wrestling change your life or what's been the biggest impact on your life from our great sport of wrestling? Yeah. Well, I think, there's two phases of that question. The first one was it gave me the drive and the discipline and the determination to succeed in the business world. And, you know, it, it, it really kind of laid the groundwork for that. And then the second part is, you know, my, my son, who's a wrestler at the uh, university of Illinois, you know, it gave me something to connect and bond with him over and, and, and created a, a very close bond with us and something that we've shared. It, that's a good point. I mean, my mom and I were in my dad too, but my mom really knew nothing about wrestling and she got so obsessed with it that she was eventually a certified wrestling ref and she was just crazy about it. And to this day, you know, I just talking to her every day at the Olympic trials, filling her in. And so the bond it creates is really cool. Um, and no one's ever said that before. And I've asked, you know, almost 250 people that question. So, um, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your time, Doug. I look forward to meeting in person soon. And, uh, yeah, it's just exciting what you guys are doing. If there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate you having me. Take care. And that's the end of this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. Thank you so much for tuning in. To watch the full video interview, go to YouTube Wrestling Changed My Life. And that's it. We'll see you next time.